As I think of all that we just sang, it was beautiful. And I want to pray and ask God to open our hearts to receive his word now as we hear from Genesis chapter 3. So would you please pray with me as we prepare to hear from his word. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the reality of all that we have been shown about you through songs, even through a reminder, Lord, of communion, a thing that you have established for us to remember your death until you come. And even as Todd reminded us, Lord, that our time in this earth is short. And therefore, Lord, we need constant dependence on you and fasting is an expression of that. Lord, because we are so quickly given to our own strength. Lord, in your grace, would you expose our hearts today and show us our great need for you, that you are truly our defense, that all we have in you is sufficient, and therefore you are the one who we lift high. Lord, we want to do that. We want to see that today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide us into truth. Sanctify us by truth today. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. I have the privilege of talking about a passage, it's just two verses long, but it's, it's talking about the realities that will span all of history. So, so far, we've looked at Genesis 3, and many of us know that this is the fall. This is when man and woman fell into sin. And last week, actually past two weeks, we looked at the temptation, the deception of the serpent coming to Eve and the giving of the fruit and them taking it. And last week, we looked at some of their reactions to it and how man in their own arrogance even still tries to cover, there's a hiding, but then there's God in his grace coming to them and asking them questions. And today, we're going to look at this reality of God's judgment and today we're going to focus on God's words to the serpent. So if you think of what's happened in Genesis 3, you kind of have this, this back and forth. And I say it's kind of slithering back and forth through the story because one of the main characters is a serpent. But you have this reality of the serpent coming to Eve and then her giving it to Adam. So you have that going down. Then when God talks to them, you have Adam, Eve, and the serpent, you have that. Now in our passage, you then come back and you have the serpent, Eve, and Adam. And so you see this slithering through our passage of what's known as Jewish chiasm. It's a natural progression going in and out, back and forth for the importance of what's happening here. And so you see that in Genesis chapter 3. And this is a passage that is actually infused into the rest of the stories of Scripture. This passage kind of sets up a reality that you can read through each of these stories, or many, not all of them, but many of the stories that you see throughout the rest of the Bible, including our time today, church history. You see these things. And so let us read Genesis 3, 14 and 15 together. It says this, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If you look at this, God immediately acts upon the accusations of each of the parties. We know that they blamed one another. God doesn't correct their blaming. He doesn't say, well, actually, this is what happened, and so on and so forth. He goes with the accusations and starts giving judgment to the people and to the serpent. And he says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. When he says, cursed are you, it is a decree of doom that he places on the serpent. To be cursed is the inability to obtain life, eternal life. The end result of being cursed is that you face the righteous wrath 
of God, and you are perishing, ultimately removed from the presence and blessing of God. So this is the exact opposite of being blessed. Think of Genesis 1, when God makes man and woman and all of creation, God blesses them and says to them various things. There's blessing all through Genesis 1 and even Genesis 2. Now comes the first statement of a curse. Cursed are you. And notice that it is a pronouncement of cursing on the serpent and not on the people. There's only two things, and we'll look at these over the next couple weeks, but the cursing is never on Adam and Eve. So when we talk about the curse, it is specifically to the serpent and to the ground. Those are the two things that are cursed, not Adam, not Eve. That's very important because you'll see throughout the story is that the people have hope. The serpent does not. The ground also is going to face ruin and have to be remade. But this, this aspect of the curse is actually two bookends in the story of the Pentateuch. The whole Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis 3, you have this statement of blessing and curse. In Deuteronomy 30, near the end of the Pentateuch, you have Moses saying to the people after the wanderous, wilderness wandering, not the wanderous wildering, uh, wilderness wandering, they're just about to go into the promised land. And he says to them, listen, this sounds very much like what God did in the Garden of Eden. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Notice, if you have life and death, you have good and evil. He sets before them good and evil. That's in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord, walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and statutes and his rules, he says, then you shall live and multiply fruitful and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you. Blessed are you, God says in Genesis 1. And it says, and you will be blessed in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. In other words, you'll stay in the land. But, he says, if your heart turns away and you stop hearing from me, you're drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them. He says, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Does that not sound like in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die? He's pronouncing a statement to them. You will surely perish. You will be cursed. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. In other words, you'll be kicked out. That's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. They were kicked out of the garden. And he says to them, therefore, I call heaven and earth witness today that I have set before you life, death, blessing, curse. And he says, choose life, that you and your offspring may live. Love the Lord, obey his voice, hold fast to him because he is your life and length of days and that you may dwell in the land. But we know in the story of scripture, is it not true that just like in the Garden of Eden, the people of Israel failed? They failed. They were kicked out of the land just like Adam and Eve were. And that's the reciprocating nature of everything that happens in scripture is that you see the same pictures, the same images over and over again. Because the serpent's goal was already met in the deception of Eve. And so now's the judgment of that. And there's, there's the reality that the devil wanted people to have a broken relationship with God. He wanted Adam and Eve to live a life that was self-sufficient, that was prideful, that let them be the ones who determined what was right and wrong. That was his goal, to remove relationship, to break relationship with God. And he accomplished that. And let's be honest, the devil still seeks to draw on our natural desires to make us pridefully self-sufficient even today. And that's where most of us live. We live in this battle if we're saved, the Spirit is waging war against the desires of our flesh that don't want God. And that is what is in us because of this reality of the devil's, in a sense, partial victory over humanity. 
but he's cursed for his actions. And there's two aspects to this curse in the passage, two aspects. One is physical. Actually, a serpent is cursed. The other one is relational. It's between the serpent and God's people. And so let's look at the first one. The physical curse is a symbol of the result of pride. Those who are opposed to God, this is a reminder to us that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And he sets up a symbol that's actually found today in snakes. How many of you like snakes? Some of you do. Okay? That's not strange. They are God's creation. But every time you see a snake, there's a reality of remembrance again. That the serpent was cursed in a different position. Some would call it a curse of locomotion. So let's look at it. He says, cursed are you above all livestock and all beasts of the field. It says, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now there's something unique about snakes, isn't there? Most land animals, again, not sea animals, land animals have limbs. And they are mobile because of their ability to move an arm or a leg or legs, plural. But snakes don't. Snakes crawl on their belly. They slither. And that movement, some people hate the fact that I'm even doing this right now. You don't like it. Because the reality is snakes are just unique and odd. But everything that you see here is that the serpent is, again, a constant reminder of the fall of man. It's a symbol of evil and being cursed. And so you see that image throughout the Bible. When it says, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat, these two images, we're actually going to look at this, is where God's enemies end up. They end up face first in the dust on their bellies. And it's an image of humiliation and subjugation or being dominated. Imagine someone pressing their foot on someone's back and pushing their face into the ground as the champion stands over them. That's the image. He says, on your belly, you'll never get any higher than your belly. You will always be humiliated and dominated in all of your attempts. You will always be thwarted. You will always come back to that position. No matter how many times you try to exalt yourself, I will humble you constantly. And let that be a reminder to us. That's exactly what God does to prideful, arrogant people. He humbles them. Anyone who wants to be exalted will be humbled. You have to humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. But notice that he sought to take our glory and our rulership. We were exalted, and we were given dominion as humanity. We didn't deserve that. Again, as the psalmist declares, he goes, what is man truly that you are mindful of him, that you would do this for mankind? But we, in image bearers of God, were given dominion and rulership. And so his ultimate curse is that he will be constantly humiliated and dominated by God, but also God's people. He will eventually have his power fully removed, and he will be ultimately defeated. He will be. That is his curse. And so the snake always reminds us that pride comes before a fall, and pride is truly the heart of all evil. But there's another aspect to this that is given. The first one is the physical, again, the reality that a snake reminds us of the fact of the futility of pride, of those that are opposed to God. But then you have this relational curse in verse 15. And this is an ongoing battle that we're going to look at in a little bit of depth here. But he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity, what a strange word. But it means the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Actively opposed. Think of this. When the serpent comes to Eve, that should have been her first reaction, and God promises that will be her reaction from now on. I'm putting enmity between you and the woman. She will hate you. You will hate her. 
and all who are in her line, the offspring of this woman, will also hate you, and you will hate them. So enmity is this constant, ongoing battle that is going to happen. She used to desire things of the serpent. Now she doesn't. She desires righteousness. She desires justice. She desires truth. And that is something that God allows them to have. And so this is the one where we start seeing with clarity our enemy. Do you guys have a picture in your mind of the enemy? Because that's what he's drawing constantly. There's this snake coming and constantly attacking. But then you have this enigmatic phrase. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now the word bruise there is the same word. I know some translations it says crush and the other one says to strike, but it's the same word. And the reality is, is that this is a death blow on both ends. It's a death blow. If you say, well, one is the head, one is the heel. No offense, where do snakes typically strike people? They're not jumping up into your face. They're attacking the legs with poison that comes to your whole body and kills you. That's the image. But then there's also a crushing of a head because where is the head located? By the feet. And so there's a bruising of one and bruising of the other. It's a back and forth battle that has loss of lives in it. And you and I can see that that is still going on between the serpent's offspring and God's offspring where people today are losing their life for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so here's the truth. You are either cursed or blessed. You are either the offspring of the serpent awaiting your head to be crushed or you are the offspring of the woman who actually takes part in the crushing judgment of God, back and forth it goes. And so let's look at this through the Bible, because if this is true, you, you would assume that it would show up in various passages, would you not? Very shortly, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 4. You have the first brothers. What happens in that story? You have enmity between those two. You have one of them rising up and killing his other brother, trying to snuff out the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. Seth is raised up as another offspring, and Seth's line is traced to Noah. Cain's line is the continuation of evil. And so you have these two opposite things happening in the stories. Leads to Noah. What happens in the story of Noah? The woman's offspring is spared through an ark. The rest of them, supposedly, seemingly, are the offspring of the snake. Only eight are saved. Doesn't seem like it's going very well. We move on and we have the Tower of Babel. And then you have immediately after the Tower of Babel the story of Abraham. Think then of you have this coming into one family, but you have Isaac and Ishmael. You have Jacob and Esau. Isn't it amazing that Jacob comes out of the womb grasping someone's heel? Do you realize that's the same word as the heel? His name means cheat. He actually looks like the serpent. And then the story has a twist. It's interesting. Jacob is actually not the serpent offspring. It's Esau. But Jacob isn't deserving of the blessing. He stole it. He cheated. And yet he gets it. Very strange. God starts using serpent offspring for his glory. Joseph and his brothers, his brothers look a lot like snake people. They throw him in a pit and want him dead. Again, like what is going on? God in his grace raises up one of the brothers, just sell him. Good choice. Off he goes to Egypt. And he faces more persecution for being the woman's offspring. Thrown into prison, not even supposed to be there. There he is. And God raises him up to save the world. And then his brothers are terrified because Jacob finally dies and they think that Joseph is going to be evil to them and he says, no, this was God's will. God meant this for good. But then you come to Egypt and let's stop here because Egypt is the real 
the first real snake battle that you have. Think of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has on his head a snake. He's got a poised female cobra on his head. You realize that this man is killing offspring in Egypt out of fear, trying to destroy the male children. Eventually, Moses and Aaron confront him. How do they confront him? They confront him with a battle of snakes. At the beginning, takes a staff, throws it down, turns into a serpent. Now, the word there is actually dragon or monster, but it's an image of a larger snake. And what does he do? That snake swallows up the rest of the snakes, reminding him, I'm coming after you. You are going to be swallowed up in this. Your gods and your goddesses are unable to protect you. You will face humiliation and domination by the God who reigns. And sure enough, after they're led out of Egypt, Moses sings this song in Exodus 15, and he says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. He says, you stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Now we know the earth didn't do it, but the elements of the earth did. The sea swallowed them over. So what happened with the snakes was an image to say, that's going to happen to you, Pharaoh. You're a divine snake man and you are going to be defeated it's interesting, as you move on, you have other stories like this. I, I just want to touch on some of them. So, kids, humor me. This is going to be fun. Judges 5, the song of Deborah, the story of Deborah and Barak. You've got this woman, Jael. She has this commander come into her tent, and she offers him a glass of milk. And he lays down, and she covers him over, and she just so lovingly takes a tent peg to his skull and crushes it through his head, crushes him into the ground through the temple. And they sing this song. It was probably a bestseller back then, Judges 5, 26. It says, she sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. That is the seed of the woman crushing the snake man. And then the first Jewish rap is written in verse 27. It says, mm, between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. <laughs> Look it up. It's actually verse 27. As I read it, I go, wow, that is very repetitive. It's honestly the first Jewish rap. And the song is called Don't Drink Goblets of Milk. That's the song. Judges 9, Abimelech. Abimelech is a guy who killed 70 of his brothers on one stone. He said, I'm going to be the king. And he deceives the men of Shechem, and he then becomes the king. He fights battles. There's actually a curse that is stated on the men of Shechem and Abimelech. And he goes to the men of Shechem and he burns them all in a tower. And he moves on to the next place to show his dominance and his power. And a woman is on the top of the tower and throws a stone over the side of it. And it says it crushes his head. And what does he do? He says, someone else kill me. He turns to his armor bearer so that it is not said that a woman killed me. Interesting. A woman crushing the head of a snake man again. And the, the Bible says this in Judges 9, and God made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerob Baal. 1 Samuel 5, I love this story. I was, again, I'm I'm loving this, okay? This is so fun for me. But 1 Samuel chapter 5, listen. The Philistines have a god named Dagon, right? The Ark of the Covenant is stolen by the Philistines. It comes into the temple of Dagon. And the next day, the Philistine priests come in, and where is Dagon? Dagon's statue is face down 
on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. They walked in and said, Dang gone it, get back up again. <laughs> sure enough, they lift them back up. What happens the next day? He's down again. This time it says that his hands are cut off and his head is cut off. And the Bible says the only thing remaining was his body. Now, you tell me what that looks like. If that is not a giant snake person that had his head cut off, I don't know what is. Because his limbs are cut off too. It's like, hmm, you don't look right. I know what you should look like. Let's see, there you go, a giant snake. Oh, it's still not right. Head off, there we go. I know that image. No one is there. No one did this. It's just the Ark of the Covenant. And it says that the hand of God was heavy on the Philistines. And the Ark, just a box, destroys these cities. They get rid of it. Five different cities this thing goes to. That's amazing. You're always going to be humiliated. You're always going to be subjugated. Think of the story that comes next. David and Goliath. What happens? This guy is from the Philistines. He's covered in our translations say male armor. It's scale armor. Scales, right? Do you know anything else that has scales all over it? Yeah, fish, they do. But sea dragons, dragons, that's what he is. He's this giant dragon man. And what happens to this guy? Stone, leaves, where does it go? Doesn't go into his shoulder, goes right into his head. What happens to him? Face down on the ground. What happens next? Sword off the head. There it is again, over and over again. This is happening to the seed of the serpent. It's constantly there in the Bible. But sometimes God doesn't do it in the way that we want, but there's still a desire for the seed of the woman to see God beating back the seed of the serpent. And so Psalms, the Psalms are filled with this. But Psalm 74 says, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff? How long is this enemy going to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand? Why aren't you fighting? Take it out of your garments and just destroy them. It says, yet God, my king, you're from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. This is how he describes him dividing the Red Sea. He says, you broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Why would he use that imagery? The Red Sea parting is God crushing the head of a giant chaotic sea monster with many heads? Yeah, because he knows that every single battle that happens in this physical world is not just a battle of flesh and blood, it's a battle against the powers of the heavenlies. That's where the battle lies. And so you read Micah 7, and Micah is written to the nation before they go into exile, and he promises a future return of the exile. And he says to him, he says, Lord, as in the days that you brought us out of the land of Egypt, actually, God says, as in the days when I brought you out of the land of Egypt, God says, I will show them, I will show these people marvelous things. He says, the nations will see these things and they'll be ashamed of all their might or their pride, their arrogance, their puffing up of their abilities. They shall lay their hands on their mouths and their ears shall be deaf or deaf. And then it says in verse 17, they, the nations, shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They will come trembling out of their strongholds and they'll turn in dread to the Lord and they shall be in fear of you. That's what God says he will do for his enemies. The enemies of God's people are going to lick the dust like serpents. And then he moves on, though, and he says, listen, God will not keep his anger against his people forever. He delights in his steadfast love. He will have compassion, and he will tread our iniquities underfoot, is what it says. Do you realize that he's also pointing out something that is truly needing to be fixed. Because it's not just the devil that needs to be tread underfoot. There's something else that needs to be tread underfoot in order for us to have a relationship with God. And he says he is going to tread our iniquities underfoot. Because that is also an enemy that stands opposed to us. Now, 
Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Is it there? You better believe it's there too. Malachi chapter four, last chapter, he says this. He says, surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant, again, the prideful and the evildoers will be stubble. And the day is coming that I will set them on fire. But he goes on and says, but you, you who revere my name, he says, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. You'll go out and frolic like well-fed calves. I don't know if you guys do that on a regular basis, but well-fed calves frolicking, I, I'd be interested to see some of us trying that sometime. Uh, but then it says this in verse three, then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes. The word could be translated dust under the soles of your feet on the day when I act. Again, over and over and over, the Bible is anticipating this snake crushing happening. And so when you read the New Testament, you better believe the snake crusher is coming. Look at the Bible from the New Testament perspective in the life of Jesus. When he's born, he automatically has a repetition of the first battle of Pharaoh, you have King Herod also trying to kill infants. You have him escaping to Egypt because out of Egypt he's going to call his son. And he comes out of Egypt, goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil, by the snake. And he overcomes that temptation. But then think of his ministry. Who is he constantly at odds with? The religious leaders. How are they described in the Bible? If you look at this, they're always trying to trap him. They're always trying to make him slip up. They're always trying to, in a sense, deceive him and get him to fall over and over again. And look at what they claim. They say, we have one father, it's God. And what does Jesus say? He says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here now. I didn't come on my own. He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And he's saying, that's you. You are serpent people. You're the offspring of the serpent. You are not the right offspring. And then he decrees a curse on them. If you read in Matthew 23, you have seven woes stated. Those are all curses. Those are all decrees of doom that God states over the nation. And he says about them, he says, listen, you guys say things like, oh, we would never have done what our fathers did in getting rid of and killing the prophets. He goes, but yet you yourselves witness that you are sons of those who murdered. Then fill up the measure of your fathers. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Is his question. He says, listen, you're going to persecute people, and he says, so that on you is gonna come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And he says, truly, I say, all of this is gonna come upon this generation. He promises a crushing of a head, and those who follow the serpent, and some of us, listen, when God pronounces judgment and fights, some of us get really excited and like, yeah, crush that serpent. Well, like James and John, do you want us to call down lightning on those guys right now? Because I will. I will do that. Do you want me to, Jesus? Please, please, please. No? That's what we want. But remember, Micah reminds us there's another crushing that needs to happen because James and John and their desire for justice miss the part of what their role is as well. You and I are all offspring of the serpent. Romans 3 could not be clear about this. Notice how it describes people. It says there's no one good, not even one. Our throats are an open grave. We use our tongues to deceive. The poison of vipers is under our lips. 
Our mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Our paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace we don't know, and there's no fear of God before our eyes. Do you realize we're all offspring of the serpent? By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in our desire for justice, we have to understand that that should be put over on our heads just as quickly as we want it on other people. We deserve the curse. And this is the miracle. Jesus tells Nicodemus something that is beautiful. Jesus tells him a story in John 3 about another serpent that came and was raised up. And he says to him, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn or curse the world, but in order that the world might be saved or blessed through him. Think of the bronze serpent. He's telling a story about the people's impatience and grumbling in the wilderness. God says, I'm going to take you to the promised land. Well, that's this way. And God says, yeah, you're going to go this way. And the people go, what? And they're grumbling. They're like, well, we should have just died in Egypt. And God says, okay, you want some snakes like Egypt? Here you go. And out come some fiery serpents, and they start killing people, biting them, killing them. And the people cry out to God, and Moses builds a bronze serpent and puts it on a pole and says, anybody who looks at it can be saved. Do you realize that that is a cursed object? The people hate that object. That's a despised, shameful object. Why would you put that up there? Because the curse goes on a cursed object. And Jesus says, that's going to be me. I'm going to be cursed so that you aren't cursed. I am going to be the one that removes from you the very thing that separates us. I am going to be counted as the serpent's offspring so that you would not be. And oh wonders that God takes serpent offspring and turns them into his own children. Church, that's incredible. Do you know this about God? Do you know this about Jesus? Bjorn read Isaiah 53. Do you realize that this passage is in Isaiah 53? Men hide their faces. He was despised because he's cursed. I'm not going to look at that. It's shameful to look at that. We esteemed him stricken, smitten, afflicted. All of those words are used over and over again in the Old Testament of what God does to his enemies. That's what it says about Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. When we read the word crushed, we're thinking of the snake. That's what happened to Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. It says he was cut off out of the land of the living. He was sent outside of the garden for us. Yet there was no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He didn't deserve any of this. And here's the wonder. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, it says he shall see his offspring. He's going to see offspring because of him being crushed for us. Second Corinthians marvels at this and says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us 
because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Church, I hope you know that truth about your Savior, Jesus. I hope you look at this and say, that's truly amazing. When we come together for the Lord's Supper and remember his death, do you remember that he was cursed for you? That you by nature are, again, rebellious against God, an enemy of God, removed from his presence, rightfully judged under your own actions. And God, wonder of wonder, sent Jesus to do the very thing of living perfectly, but then suffering as one who did everything wrong, because that's us. And that God can take us now and transfer us from the dominion of darkness and bring us over into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you know that? Do you believe that? If you do not, I, I ask you, please do not take another moment and stop thinking about that. You must reconcile to God through Jesus Christ. You must know him in a way that is this way. That you, being undeserving of his grace, would find the graciousness of a Savior that would remove all of this from you and that you would put your full trust in him. But this, as I said, is an ongoing battle. So let's talk briefly about the battle today. The Bible says that the tactics of the evil one against the offspring are in two main ways, deception and devouring. That's typically what the snake will do. They deceive in order to devour. And you have images of that over and over and over again, where deception leads to devouring. If he can't deceive you, he will just simply try to devour you. Paul writes about false teachers, and he says, listen, I feel a divine jealousy for you. I brought you to one husband, to Christ. And then he says, I'm afraid, though, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts are going to be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says, these men are false apostles. They're deceitful workmen disguising themselves as those who are genuinely apostles of Christ. He goes, and that's no wonder, because Satan himself disguises as an angel of light, seeking to deceive you. Always trying to remove your love and devotion to Christ. Church, I, I know that during this time, there's many things that we have probably given our time to and even our ears to. Do the things that you listen to and the things that you give your time to, do they help you seek to have a pure devotion to Christ? Even if it's religious, couched in religious terms, because it doesn't mean that that's good. He just said that that's exactly what the devil will do. He'll come in. He's not going to just be anti-Christian. Reject Jesus. That's not going to be the message of the enemy. It's going to be, listen, you're doing okay, but there's some things you need to focus on. Perhaps God is, is just about to give you things that you truly want. Maybe God is just about to do something for you. And God's will might be that he doesn't. Do you still trust and remain devoted to God when he does not give the very things that your heart is going to want? Because the enemy is always going to attack you on the desires that you have. They're not wrong desires. But they often don't come in the time that we want them. And the devil's always trying to give you a sooner out. He did it with Jesus in the wilderness. Bow to me and I'll give you all the nations of the world. God was going to get all the nations of the world. But just do it this way and then you'll get it easier. That's often the way that the devil deceives us. The other way, though, is devouring us. John 15 says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Jesus is very open about this. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as if it were as if you belonged to the world. But you do not belong to the world. I have brought you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. Church, let me give a fair warning. As we see things in our nation, can we just admit that perhaps our time of ease and comfort is quickly coming to a close? 
that perhaps there's going to be a lot more religious pressure for Christians to stand out, and we're going to have to. We're not going to be able to just be there and be hidden. We're going to be exposed for who we truly are. And that actually, by God's grace, is some of the best things that could happen for us. And I would say that our war is not going to be the same. Every generation fights their own battles. And as we look over the scope of what's happening in our world in America, I would say that our war is probably going to be an ongoing attack on the uniqueness and beauty of humanity as God created them male and female and the beauty of that relationship in marriage. That will probably be one of our greatest wars. And some of us will be thrown in prison and be ostracized and kicked out of social norms because of these things. That's a very real battle that we will probably be fighting very soon. But this is the truth. If we are in Christ, all of us have this commonality of war against our enemy. And Jesus has promised us the victory. If you read Revelation chapter 12, and I'll end with this, we have been told how we overcome the enemy. It says in verse 11, they have conquered him, the dragon, the great ancient serpent, the devil. They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That battles the deceit part. The blood of the Lamb, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his testimony, that's how we overcome. Because that's removing deceit from our life. But then the devouring part, it says of this, they loved not their lives even unto death. That when we face persecution, that we still love the Lord Jesus. That he's still our all. That you and I wouldn't even mind that whether by life or death, that we would honor and love and show that our aim is to please him in anything. And again, Jesus is not yet back. And so we will continue be reminding of our battle call. We're going to remember that we're still fighting. And our fighting is going to lead to victory. And so we do not fight in vain. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word Lord, as we reflect on this passage of the enmity between the offsprings, Lord, it, it is real. It is true. Lord, I pray that you would help us to wake up to it. As your word reminds us over again that we're to be watchful, sober-minded, vigilant, aware. And Father, you are very good at showing us our need for you. Lord, there are some who are discouraged under the weight of the battle. I pray that you would remind them of the victory that they have in Jesus. That the gospel is sufficient in fighting. Lord, our thoughts often betray us. Our desires often betray us. Lord, your word is true. So I pray that we would value what you have given us in your word. that points us to you always. Lord, I know that there are some who perhaps are still desiring to live how they want in pride, arrogance. Father, I ask that you would help us to see the joyful dependence that we can have on you because you are so good. You've done so much for us. All we need is in you. And Lord, we know that you conquered death. And so our hearts are rejoicing, Lord, that even if we do face death for your name, Lord, that we are truly still victorious. We're actually more than conquerors. Oh, Lord, that's so good. I pray that our hearts would rest in you today. They would understand the joy that we have in a renewed relationship with you, making serpents your children. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen. Amen. Wow. How about that? I'm sitting here backstage going, How, really, a song is the all we got to respond to that? I feel so inadequate right now. My heart is just crying like, yes! Look what God's done. Look at the story he's written. 
Can you imagine one person writing that story, but instead over 40 people over thousands of years writing that story and that kind of continuity? God, that faithful to accomplish the things that he's promised and his love for us to never give up. Stand up on your feet and we're gonna do the best with what we have to muster the appropriate response to that. Remember how we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, not loving our lives unto the death. That's Revelation 12. We're going to sing it today as we go out. Celebrate the story that we get to be a part of through Jesus. Sing this together. Seated above Thrones in the Father's love Destined to die Poured out for all mankind God's only Son A perfect and spotless one He never sinned Suffered as if he did
the victory that will sometimes look like defeat in your life, but will surely win in the end. Because God is faithful to finish the work that he's begun. Do you believe that over your life? So let's sing our only hope. the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony and everyone overcome we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our desire that the Lord would pour his Holy Spirit out on his church and he has done that today if we didn't have a watch on our arms we wouldn't have any idea what time it is we would think Charles preached for like 10 minutes and that's the work of the Holy Spirit Charles said this week he said if you want me to preach a short sermon then don't give me a Bible <laughs> and leave it to Charles to show us the snake crusher throughout the wholeness of his word. Well done, Charles. And here's what we, we even wrestled over this this week. Hey, when was the snake crusher actually defeated? Because we know, according to Peter, that he's still prowling around like a roaring lion looking for those to devour. We know, brothers and sisters in Christ, that the defeat came at the cross. And Satan is so deceived that he still thinks he can win. And so that's what he's trying to do. But there's a day coming, church. There's a day coming when he will be taken and bound and thrown away forever, never again to torment the bride of Christ. If you are here today and you don't understand what this victory is all about, 
Charles already made a plea with you. I'm doing the same thing. Do not leave without understanding what victory in Jesus Christ is, being in relationship with him. Church, you are loved. Remember this. Be praying. We'll see you this Thursday at 6.30 as we enter into our fast together. Be praying for our youth as they go off to their youth retreat sometime really soon. And uh, I don't know what else to tell you. So have a wonderful week. Know this, church. You are loved.